And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening to us today. Thank you. How are you today, Sarah? It's apparently my birthday. Yes! When this episode goes up, it will be your birthday. Happy birthday, Sarah. Thank you. What are we watching today, Ben? We're watching Dracula's Daughter from 1936, the Universal Pictures sequel to Dracula in much the same way Bride of Frankenstein was the sequel to Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Sort of interesting that in like both cases the follow-up is like the same thing but a woman this time. Yeah, that is a trend that continues. Oh, you liked Conan? Here's Sonya. Sure, right. You like Superman? Here's Supergirl. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So since uh, Dracula's Daughter is kind of our first big lady vampire movie and we've On previous episodes, we've talked about vampires in general, and we've talked about Dracula in specific. I thought maybe you could let us know about lady vampires, and if there are any, like, significant cultural differences between how they're portrayed versus, like, male vampires? Sure. Yeah, as as Ben kind of alluded, um, listeners, if, if you would like to learn about the history of vampires, their origins, even some like explanations for where the myth or legend comes from. You can check out some previous episodes, um, specifically the one on Nosferatu, episode 10, and the one on Dracula, episode 24. Today, since we're watching a movie about a lady vampire, I'll be covering a bit of history regarding lady vampires, rather than just vampires. Mm-hmm. Vampirellas, if you will. Yes. This isn't really our first time covering um, a lady vampire. That's true. We had the old lady vampire in Vampire, uh, which was from episode 31. Yeah, Marguerite Chopin. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, we had Dracula's wives and Lucy in Dracula. True. And we also talked a lot about the origins of the word vampire in Genuina. Yeah, so that was from episode 7, way back. Yeah, that was the the vamp as femme fatale, which, you know, we we talked about how that wasn't, like, really related to vampires. It was just sort of like a metaphor thing. But I think, like, oddly enough, in a kind of feedback loop, the, like, not vampiric vamp kind of feeds back into how actual lady vampires are portrayed. Definitely. So that's as far as we've kind of covered with vamps so far. In literature, kind of the earliest appearance of a female vampire is in Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla uh, from an 1871 novel compilation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a short story anthology, really. That's the word. That's through, the word I was through, looking for. Through the Glass Darkly? Yes. Yes. Um, and I kind of talked about Le Fanu and the making of Carmilla, kind of the context around that publication in our episode on Vampire, because that was adapting that whole anthology. So if you want to learn more about the author and that short story, you can listen to episode 31. I'm just going to be kind of focusing on the character of Carmilla herself right mm-hmm. now. When we've done this many episodes, it's like we have to like footnote ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when you're reading Amazing Spider-Man and he's all like, 
sad about Gwen Stacy, and there's like a footnote being like, Peter's girlfriend died in issue 121. Spoilers. Jeez. You've had 40 years to read that comic. (laughs) So the short story Camilla is narrated by a young woman who is preyed upon by Camilla. Um, And the story goes, there's a carriage accident outside the main character's Uh, Laura, outside her home, and the passenger, Camilla, um, was injured, so they take her in uh, to kind of nurse her back to health, um, and they actually become close friends. Now, Camilla will sometimes make romantic advances towards Laura and then kind of laugh it off. She's very secretive. Um, She sleeps much of the day, and as Camilla's staying in uh, Laura's house. I should probably mention that they're like preteens and Laura lives with her dad yeah. and stuff like that. The girls in the nearby town are starting to die of some kind of unknown disease where they're just kind of wasting away. Laura also begins to suffer from this disease and has dreams of a cat-like beast pouncing on her at night. And after these dreams, she wakes up and has a small blue spot on her chest. And this is neither here nor there, but it's kind of important to the synopsis of this story. But Carmilla somehow resembles Laura's ancestor, Mercala. Right, I remember this. <laughs> Laura and her father uh, go to go visit a family friend who had been established in the story. Whatever. Um, and this family friend, uh, his daughter, happened to die of a similar illness to what Laura is currently suffering. And it comes up that... His daughter died after befriending someone named Malarka. Mm-hmm. Carmilla is seen by this family friend who confirms Carmilla to be Malarka. They go to the tomb of Mercala's ancestor and see a corpse that's very well preserved, almost as if it's breathing. They take this to be a vampire, so they stake her, cut off her head, and thus Carmilla, who was... Mercala mm-hmm. slash Malarca yeah. is defeated, but Laura never fully recovers from her illness uh, from these vampire attacks. That that name thing is always the thing that kind of ruins Carmilla for me. Like, it's a good <laughs> short story and it's so influential, but like, this whole, like, y- y- her present name is the one that's like most like a real name, and then all the like older names she has are like weird anagrams is such a corny fucking thing. It's corny, but I love it. <laughs> like Dr. Acula. Right, sure. Like Alucard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a thing. Yeah, dra- uh, yeah. I was about to say Draculas are bad at hiding their names. Vampires are bad at hiding their names. Yeah. So we have this example of a vampire preying on a person. Carmilla and Laura are both young-ish girls. Um, I would say, like, teens, like early teens, maybe? Sure, sure. Because it's, like, written in, like, the 1800s, and they haven't been married off yet. So mm-hmm. that gives you an idea of how old they are. In the novel Dracula, Dracula's Three Brides, they refer to themselves as sisters. Right. Um, but in the novel, they're actually described as two of them having dark skin and one having fair skin. hmm And what we're told about these three weird sisters, uh, or three <laughs> brides, or anything like that, comes from Harker's stay at the castle. Uh, one night he's exploring and he encounters them when he, he believes he's asleep, but then he sees them approach. He's very attracted to them, mm-hmm. so much so that he's like, oh man, 
hope they make out with me. <laughs> and then they start, and then, like, start biting him, and then Dracula forces them off, handing them a wiggling sack. It's supposed to be a baby in a sack. Yeah. Um, to be like, Harker's mine, take this morsel instead. Yeah, eat this baby. Um, I'll leave Harker to you when, when I leave for England. Mm-hmm. They appear again in the novel when Helsing and Mina go to the castle, and they call Mina, who's been kind of infected with vampirism at this point, their sister. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see, yeah, it's not a biological sister in the sense of, like, Yeah, it's, it's a sorority. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. The sorority of Dracula. <laughs> Helsing goes to kill them during the day, uh, but actually he gets transfixed by their beauty, and then he, like, he, like works his way through it and stabs them and, and mm-hmm. kills them. But it's em- emphasized that they are very attractive, they are very beautiful, and they eat babies. Mm-hmm. Also in Dracula's novel is Lucy being turned into a vampire and attacking children in the nearby park as the Lady in White. Yes. So again, eat them babies. <laughs> in our episode on Nosferatu, um, I talked about folkloric origins of vampires and, you know, where those stories might have come from, kind of going back to, like, these original names of, like, Strigoi and things like that. Right. The only mention in folklore that kind of comes close to, like, a female vampire is Lilith, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's also a a whole ball of wax. Yeah, Lilith is her own kind of thing, mainly because um, of translations of the Bible. Yes. Slash... Her name going into legend slash being used as a feminist icon. Well, I, <laughs> I described Lilith recently to someone I was talking about her with as being like the biblical equivalent of a Roy Thomas or Kurt Busiek comic book character in that she solely exists to fix a continuity error in the book of Genesis and then like goes on to become her own thing. Sure. And might also just be Screech Owls. Yeah, yeah, the translation of Lilith is Screech Owl, as as well as, like, other things, like Mm -hmm. monsters or whatever. Yeah. She comes up here and there uh, in kind of Bible translations and in some Jewish texts, like the Alphabet of Sirach, and in stories with Jewish mysticism and occultism, more generally. Mm -hmm. The main idea with Lilith, her name is really hard for me to say, Mm -hmm. you can probably tell. She was created by God from dust just as Adam was created, but she refused to be subservient to Adam, so she was cast out of Eden, and so then Eve was taken from Adam's rib, so she would actually be subservient. Yeah. And when she was out of Eden, she got with Archangel Samael and birthed monsters. Uh, And that's kind of equated through the years as her being demonic and eating babies, etc. Right. As legends kind of trickle through the ages, who she is has become a bit interchanged with a demonic seducer and, uh, like I said, eater of babies and kind of equating that with blood-drinking vampire. So that's kind of where Lilith pops up in all of this vampire junk. Right. So maybe this is a good time to bring back what we kind of alluded to when mentioning Genuina at the top of the show, that vampire that is, to be a vamp, was kind of a pejorative term for an independent lady in the same way that gold digger is kind of a pejorative term. If you are called a vamp, the idea is that you're kind of insatiable. Mm -hmm. You're out to get men. Yeah, you're predatory, uh, you're a homewrecker, you're monstrous in certain ways. 
it was a popular term in the 1920s-ish mm-hmm. with, you know, the rise of non-traditional women, um, kind of characterized by flappers. Right. And these are rebellious women who will ruin a good man and infect young women. And so you can kind of see this vampirism in an emotional, financial, sexual way. Yeah, yeah. And that's before, you know, vampire became like a very widely used word in pop culture because Dracula, uh, the film, probably did most of that. But at that point, it's still kind of the the dangerous woman is vamp thing that we kind of saw in Genuina. And you can see how those characteristics get taken onto supernatural vampires. Yes. And Lilith kind of embodies that. Lucy and Dracula's brides definitely do. Lefanu's Camilla a little bit. Which is interesting, given that when Lefanu's Glass Darkly was adapted into Vampire, Vampire has an old lady vampire. You know, still preying on young girls' innocence or, like, pure souls, because it's very Catholic. Yeah. But um, it's just interesting that that's the one case where it's, like, this old lady vampire. Well, like in, in, so in the short story, Carmilla, Carmilla's very young. And then in Dracula, the lady vampires, we get her like sexy yeah. and like whatever. And then in Vampire, we got like the super old woman. So we're, ba- we basically got our three cultural archetypes of womanhood right there. Right. Like, you know, like maiden whore crone kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Which kind of brings me to talk about, I guess, um, a historical vampire? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, let's do it. Or at least... No, nope. um, yep. <laughs> uh, at least a serial killer with at least a fascination with blood. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's sure. dive right in. Okay, cool. Let's go down to the deep end of this topic. Countess Elizabeth Bathory of Exed lived from 1560 to 1614. And she ruled in the Kingdom of Hungary and Transylvania, which today is around Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, you know, vampire country. Yes. She was convicted of killing 80 people, but the rumors are that it was, like, witness accounts, but the actual evidence said 80 people. But the witness accounts are that it was up to 600 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Now, these people were young girls who served as her servants and maids. Um, They were aged 10 to 14, so, you know, virgins. Why are you looking at me like that? Look, if I'm going to drink someone's blood, I just prefer that nobody's fucked it. (laughs) Um, As far as the evidence goes, Elizabeth Bathory committed torture on these young girls, um, mutilated them, and there was suspected cannibalism. But as she's kind of gone into legend, the myth is that, the myth, the legend, was that she bathed in their blood to retain her youth, or at least her, her youthful looks. Well, and like, this is a real thing people believed at the time, was that like, you could, that, that blood was something that, like, could preserve youth if you drank it or bathed in it. The blood is the life, Mr. Renfield. Yeah, exactly. Now, she was off, like, they found the evidence, she was convicted, you know, all of that. Even with, you know, 1614, (laughs) 1610, really, 
CSI wasn't great back then. Yeah, yeah. But they still found all this shit in her basement, you know? So she obviously was a serial killer and not a good person. But I think being geographically close to Transylvania certainly helps that vampire rumor mill get going. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I've just thrown a ton of stuff about vampires at you. And now to just kind of sum it all up, what we've seen in vampires in kind of the films that we've watched, what, um, you know, an audience of this time would have seen in literature, examples in myth and historical accounts, we see lady vampires as by and large being like sexy, beautiful, preying on something else to further that vanity. Mm-hmm. In the case of Lady Vampire preying on Guy, it's, um, she has the power, she is the threat, and that's really frightening to an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of, like, especially with, like, the pejorative term of vamp, the idea that she'll infect the young, innocent maidens, um, or they are at risk to either be killed or become like that. Yeah, and I mean, in the past, in our past episodes, we've, you know, we've identified that there's always been a strong cultural link between vampirism and sex, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, like, in Dracula and then afterwards, and whereas, you know, the fear in Dracula was the fear that, like, foreign men were going to target your women, the fear with lady vampires is, like, that of women who are sexually aggressive with men, which is, you know, wrong in terms of morality of the time. I guess just fear of lesbianism, too, is like a perverse thing, right? Yeah, and it's it makes sense, but it's also strange that the idea of vanity is all wrapped into here. Yeah. Because women's power comes from her beauty. Right. So that's Lady Vampires, Ben. The other thing I often think of when I think of Lady Vampires culturally is um, there's like a Victorian painting that maybe you've seen of like It's like this dude whose neck's been bent over and he's getting attacked by a vampire, but it's a woman vampire and her hair's kind of all um, flowing down over him, but it's a Victorian painting. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah. So this film is coming out in 1936. Yes. Um, One thing that I think is interesting to note is in 1914, after Bram Stoker's death, they had a posthumous short story published called Dracula's Guest. Mm -hmm. I believe that this short story was actually meant to be like the first chapter in Dracula. And I bring this up because given that it was supposed to be one of the first chapters um, and the description of a woman in this short story kind of matches what one of his brides looks like later, there's an idea that uh, the countess mentioned in this story is uh, one of his brides. Right. Yeah, so the story goes um there's an english traveler who is heading to to dracula's castle and he again like we see with harker um this english traveler ignores the innkeeper's warnings kind of considers them poppycock but he stays at the inn that night so he goes for a walk as you do at night and he wanders towards a graveyard now a snowstorm is coming coming in and that's probably why he goes snooping around some of these crypts because otherwise that's really disrespectful but he goes into a crypt and he notices this countess who looks like she's still alive but is lying in her crypt and as she's laying there and he's looking at her she awakes 
So he books it out of there, back into the snow. Um, the storm is getting worse, and lightning actually hits the crypt, uh, so she can't follow him, I guess. Um, and as he's like wandering through the snow and in the storm at night, um, he hears wolves howling and getting closer. But he wakes up back at the hotel with a telegram from Dracula warning him about wolves and snow before he begins on his journey again. Okay. The significance there being the presence of this this female vampire character. Yeah, but it's more of a spooky tone-setting thing. She doesn't actually do anything besides lay there and wake up. Yes. Yeah. So that brings us from Dracula's guest to Dracula's daughter, which, as we said, came out in 1936. The story of the making of Dracula's daughter is very complex. It's wrapped up in things like the fall of Universal Studios and the collapse of the Lemley family and the end of the American horror movie as we know it. So... Dang. This is going to be a whole thing. Okay. But it starts with Dracula's guest. So in the wake of the financial success of Dracula in 1931, there was an expectation, you know, in those early years, 31, 32, 33, everyone was scrambling to make horror movies to cash in on the trend. So in 1933, David O. Selznick, who was at the time an executive with MGM, he would eventually go independent and is most known probably for being the guy behind Gone with the Wind, um, but like had a long career where he was one of the most powerful executives in Hollywood. So David O. Selznick, he bought the film rights to Dracula's guest from Florence Stoker for $5,000 in 1933. So, you know, Universal had the film rights to Dracula, uh, but Selznick had now bought the rights to this weird standalone short story that might have just been cut content from the novel, and he began to develop it as a movie. To keep the project secret from Universal and Universal's lawyers, it was codenamed Tarantula in MGM studio correspondence. So Selznick hired John Balderston to pen a script, which was essentially designed as a sequel to Dracula, tying up that film's loose ends. In Balderson's script, Van Helsing travels to Dracula's castle in Transylvania to destroy the three brides, who kind of are just forgotten about by the end of the first movie. However, he overlooks a fourth coffin, which contains Dracula's daughter, the Countess Sikeski, whose name is probably a reference to Stoker's claim in the novel that Vlad Dracula was of Sikai origin. Balderston spells Countess Sikeski S-Z-E-K-E-L-S-K-Y. And Sikai is spelt S-Z-E-K-E-L-Y. It's a Hungarian minority ethnic group in Transylvania. Uh, they were tasked with defending the border of Transylvania against the Ottoman Empire. The name Sikai, or Sequi in Romanian, literally means border guards. Okay. And uh, they trace their descent to the Huns of Attila. And in Stoker's novel, he has Vlad Dracula claim he's of this ethnicity. The historical Vlad probably wasn't. Um, so he's given this countess a name that references this, um, even though the spelling's not quite right. In Balderston's script, the countess attacks and kills Van Helsing, 
as well as a young Hungarian aristocrat. So the aristocrat's American fiancé tracks him back to Transylvania, battles the countess, and then destroys her. Uh, the script included scenes of the countess torturing men with the implication that the men liked it. <laughs> so the script was technically unusable because Selznick only had the rights to characters in Dracula's guest, and Universal held the rights to the rest of the novel. But Selznick had no actual intention of making this movie. His intention was to block Universal from making a sequel by tying up the only obvious source material to base such a sequel on, which he then profited from by selling the rights to Dracula's guest and Balderston's script to Universal for $12,500 in 1935. Wow. So he made like $7,000 on that. Yeah. So it's just a power move, basically, uh, you know, doing this so that Universal would have to pay him to get the rights back. Showing you that, like, IP rights wars are not a solely modern thing in Hollywood. So the motivation for Universal to do this in 1935 was the success of Bride of Frankenstein that year. Uh, the natural follow-up to which would be a sequel to Dracula. And naturally, studio production head Carl Lemley Jr. wanted James Whale to direct. Whale, however, didn't want the film, primarily because he didn't want to direct another horror film, and also because he feared it would interfere with his long-planned adaptation of Showboat. Okay. So we're going to have to talk about Showboat now, Sarah. We, we have to? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about Showboat. So it was originally produced on Broadway in 1927. It's um, music by Jerome Kern and book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. And it was a significant development in American theater history. It was the first musical that was a dramatic play as opposed to, say, a light comedy or a like musical review show. Okay. It was a massive success. Uh, tons of hit songs. Um, the song from it you'd probably still recognize here in 2018 would be Old Man River. Mm, yeah. So Showboat, the 1927 musical, was based on a 1926 novel. And in 1928, Universal Studios embarked on a silent film adaptation of the novel. During production of that film, however, Carl Emley Sr. grew wary that audiences might be expecting a sound adaptation of the musical instead. Mm. So, at great expense, certain scenes were reshot with sound, and five songs from the musical were added for a total of 30 minutes of sound in the 146-minute runtime of the film. That being said, by the time the film actually came out in 1929, this part-talky approach was a major turnoff for audiences, and the movie was an expensive flop. So this remained a sticking point with Lemley Sr. for years, who always wanted to remake Showboat properly as an all-talky, full adaptation of the musical. In 1932, there was a hugely successful Broadway revival of the musical, uh, which led Lemley to begin the process of assembling the Broadway cast, many of whom appeared in both the 27 and 32 productions. 
he wanted to reunite that original Broadway cast to appear in the film with James Whale set to direct. Then, in 1934, Russ Columbo, one of the Broadway cast's lead actors, died from an accident with a shotgun. Uh, a friend of his was checking out Columbo's shotgun and accidentally shot him in the face with it. So, by the time a new actor could be cast in Columbo's role, the lead actress of the Broadway show, Irene Dunn, was busy filming the movie Magnificent Obsession, which meant that Whale's version of Showboat would have to be put on hold while he waited for Dunn's schedule to free up. Because of this, Whale's schedule had a huge gap in it after Bride of Frankenstein, where he was free to direct Dracula's Daughter for Lemley Jr. Seeking a way out, Whale asked if he could direct an adaptation of a mystery novel called The Hangover Murders instead. <laughs> Jr. agreed, but only if Whale would promise to direct Dracula's Daughter next. So Whale agreed to that and set to work on this mystery film, retitled Remember Last Night? It was released on September 14th, 1935, after which work on Dracula's Daughter officially began. So longtime whale collaborator R.C. Sheriff, the playwright of Journey's End and the screenwriter of The Invisible Man and One More River, was brought in for first crack at a screenplay, working off the Balderston scenario that they bought from MGM. Sheriff's version began with scenes set in the 14th century, tying movie Dracula to the historical Vlad the Impaler and thus giving Dracula an origin story. This was designed as a way to get Bela Lugosi into the picture, despite the fact that he died at the end of the first film. <laughs> the story then moves to the present day, with two engaged American couples visiting Transylvania, exploring the ruins of Dracula's castle. You know like tourists do. <laughs> they fall victim to Dracula's daughter, Countess Selinsky. So this spelling just kind of keeps getting farther and farther away from what it's supposed to be referencing. One of the men is found insane, while the other uh, is taken off to London with the Countess. There, in London, Professor Van Helsing is summoned and tracks down the Countess, who attempts to flee with her thrall by ship to the Orient. Van Helsing and the three other main characters, the two women and the one man, book passage on the same ship, and they battle the Countess during a storm at sea, destroying her, and then the movie ends with a double wedding. Okay. Upon submission to Joseph Breen at the Production Code Administration, the script was rejected with the comment that it, quote, would require half a dozen languages to adequately express its beastliness. Unquote. Uh, primarily, it was the 14th century sequences with Vlad the Impaler that were objected to. It's the past. They didn't have police. With, like, all the people being impaled on things and yeah. the tortures and the murders and yeah. the burning of poor people alive so yeah. that you don't have poor people. Yeah. So Sheriff uh, revised the script and submitted a second draft, which Breen himself said... Quote, contains countless offensive stuff which makes the picture utterly impossible for approval, unquote. <laughs> a third and a fourth draft were also rejected. Then, on October 29th, 
Magnificent Obsession completed filming, and Irene Dunn was fully free to film Showboat. So Whale used Lemley Sr.'s passion for that project to get him off of Lemley Jr.'s Dracula's daughter, having successfully delayed its production because he instructed R.C. Sheriff to write ever more wildly unacceptable drafts to ensure it wouldn't get code approval, thus ensuring that he wouldn't lose his shot at directing Showboat. Okay. So, yeah. Totally just self-sabotaged the movie. Angry, but undeterred, (laughs) Lemley Jr. hired Edward Sutherland, director of Murders in the Zoo, to take over. Okay, okay. However, uh, Sutherland's true love, as we discussed in that episode, was comedies. And he had less interest in a Dracula sequel than whale had and ditched the project and universal studios altogether to go direct a wc fields film at paramount this finally led to the hiring of lambert hillier who we recently saw because he was the director who completed the invisible ray for universal he had directed the adventure film dangerous waters for universal in the meantime The Breen office was assured that none of Sheriff's material would be used, and writer Garrett Fort was brought in to rewrite the film, having been instructed to start from scratch. When you say start from scratch, did he even use Balderston's? Yes. But nothing from the whale? Yeah, nothing from whale's version, yeah. We know Garrett Fort's work because he was the writer who adapted John Balderston's stage versions of Dracula and Frankenstein into their universal film equivalents. Uh, So he was well-versed with the material, wrote the script of the first movie. Fort fashioned a script that picked up right where the original left off and utilized only Van Helsing as a returning character, inexplicably renamed Von Helsing in this version, uh, which changes him from being Dutch to German. Maybe the the A on his typewriter was sticky. (laughs) Um, he eliminated all of the Dracula-featuring flashbacks that caused the censors so much trouble in the previous versions. This is the last time we will see work from Garrett Fort. Uh, He was a follower of Meher Baba, an Indian spiritual leader who claimed he was the avatar of God. Okay. Uh, So Fort traveled to India so that he could write a screenplay about Meher Baba, but while he was there, he grew very depressed And after he returned to America, he struggled to find work and died in a hotel room from an overdose of sleeping pills. Oh. So, in the lead role of Countess Maria Zaleska, you can see again, that name just keeps mutating, uh, they cast actress Gloria Holden. Born in 1903 in the UK, she had lived in the United States with her parents since she was five years old. She studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York and acted on stage and Broadway. Dracula's Daughter was her first starring role in a motion picture, and she was extremely displeased with it. She felt the horror genre was beneath serious actors, and also feared that typecasting would destroy her career as it had Bella Lugosi's. Mm. Dracula's Daughter would be her only horror performance, uh, and she would later gain much critical acclaim for her appearance as Emil Zola's wife in the biopic Emil Zola. Initially, the film was meant to see Lugosi return, with Jane Wyatt cast as the female lead, um, that is the romantic female lead, not the countess, and uh, Cesar Romero in the male lead. 
Wait, uh, if you're the a, Joker? Yes. So if you're a fan of 60s television, you will know Cesar Romero as 60s the Joker. But before he was the Joker, he was a, like, popular, romantic idol. Like, he was a sexy lead man. That's why he didn't shave his mustache when he was the Joker, because he felt the reason women were attracted to him was his mustache. Mm. <laughs> and here I thought it was just his smile. <laughs> Jane Wyatt, who was going to play the female lead, is also familiar to 60s television fans because she played Spock's mother, Amanda, on Star Trek. However, Lugosi's part was cut out of the movie, and Wyatt and Romero dropped out when James Whale dropped out. Oh. Because, you know, they, they sort of took that as a sign that best to get out of here. So that led to Marguerite Churchill and Otto Kruger being cast in the roles. Legosi was ultimately paid $4,000 just for the use of a wax model in his likeness to portray his corpse in the movie. We just saw Marguerite Churchill. Yes, she was Nancy in The Walking Dead. And here she plays a role called Janet, um, opposite Otto Kruger, who was a romantic leading man at this point in his career, but is best remembered today for villainous roles later in his life. And he plays Dr. Jeffrey Garth. The one returning cast member from the original Dracula is Edward Van Sloan, as the inexplicably renamed Von Helsing. Another significant member of the cast is Jewish character actor Irving Pitchell, who plays the henchman Sandor. <laughs> uh, by the 1940s, Pitchell transitioned from acting to directing making a number of anti-Nazi films, uh, and later finding himself under suspicion from HUAC and refusing to testify, thus becoming part of the American blacklist in the 1950s, passing away in 1954. With that red scare, right? Yes. Yeah. HUAC's the House Un-American Activities Committee. Shooting on Dracula's Daughter began in February of 1936, uh, before... Garrett Fort had actually completed the script. Oh. Because there was a deadline clause whereby Universal would need to pay Selznick extension fees if shooting had not started by a particular date. Well. So, the script would not actually be finished until shooting was three weeks in and the movie shot for about five. Oh no. Lambert Hillier was injured on set by a fill light falling on his head and was hospitalized, uh, which actually led to further delays. And ultimately, the film ran seven days over schedule and $50,000 over budget with a final price tag of $278,380. Okay. So to give you an idea, The Invisible Ray, with all of its special effects, had cost $235,000. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein, it cost three hundred ninety-seven. The original Frankenstein cost two sixty-two. The original Dracula had cost three fifty-five. So this movie is, in terms of the money it cost, up there with those. Keep that in mind when you watch it. Yes. Because it's not going to look it. Yeah. Um, because because all the money went to being overscheduled. Yeah. Than props. Exactly overschedule and also. Um, like the costs of paying Selznick, the costs of paying for all these different drafts, the costs of all these different directors coming in. Filming was completed on March 10th, six days after a seismic event at Universal Pictures, the fall of the Lemleys. 
This brings us back to Showboat. Okay. Which is why I put so much effort into describing what the hell Showboat was earlier. So Carl Emley Sr. wanted Showboat to be a massive production, uh, pulling out all the stops, basically to try and make up for the earlier failure. James Whale took great care to ensure period-setting authenticity in the sets and the costumes, and the production got Kern and Hammerstein to write three new songs for the film. The finished film, upon its May 1936 release, was an immense success, but it was also supremely costly. Even with its success, it ended up not even breaking the 12 highest grossing films of the year, and it cost a lot of money to make. You may recall, in one of the very first episodes where I talked about the Lemleys and Universal Studios, which might have been the Phantom of the Opera episode, that I had said that contrary to conventional Hollywood wisdom, Carl Lemley invested his own money into his productions. Mm -hmm. Now, the expense of Showboat, uh, which was budgeted at about a million dollars, made it necessary for the first time in 26 years for the studio to borrow money. Lemley took a million dollar loan for the film's budget from Standard Capital Corporation, with the Lemley family's ownership of Universal put up as collateral. Why would you do that? Then, Showboat went $300,000 over budget. That's like the cost of Dracula's daughter. Yes. And when Standard called in the loan, the Lemleys couldn't pay. So Standard foreclosed. And on March 4th, 1936, J. Cheever Cowden the head of Standard Capital, became the new president of Universal and hired Charles R. Rogers, formerly of Paramount, as vice president in charge of production, replacing Lemley Jr. So, the Lemley family was forced out of their own studio. Carl Sr. would spend the rest of the 1930s sponsoring Jews from his home region of Wittenberg in Germany for immigration to the United States, saving hundreds from the ensuing Holocaust. He died of heart disease on September 24, 1939, at the age of 72. Carl Jr. was 28 years old when he was forced out of the studio. You, re you may recall he was given it as a 20th birthday present. Yeah. Uh, he never worked in movies again, and he died of a stroke 40 years to the day after his father on September 24, 1979, at 71 years old. What did he do... Between then? I don't really know. Just odd jobs, I guess? I don't really know. Wow. Charles Rogers, the new head of production at Universal, did not care for horror films, and did not think Universal should be wasting money and time fighting with the PCA making them. Dracula's daughter would be the final one, so far as he was concerned, uh, choosing instead to focus Universal's efforts on crowd-pleasers, specifically a series of musical comedies starring girl-next-door Canadian teen idol Deanna Durbin, the success of which kept Universal in the black for the remainder of the 1930s. Durbin would actually be the highest-paid woman in America by 1947. Okay. As Dracula's daughter entered post-production, it ran afoul with the production code over its... Implicit lesbian scenes. Uh, most particularly a scene where the Countess takes a female victim. 
which Breen singled out in his notes as being the one scene in the film that needed the most careful handling. With the Universal execs no longer much inclined to defend their product, uh, they were more than happy to bow to Breen's various suggestions on the picture to ensure it was released with code approval. Dracula's Daughter opened on May 11th, 1936, with a producer credit for E.M. Asher, and no mentions of the Lemleys anywhere in the film, except on the posters for the film, where their names were still used for advertising purposes. What is funny is there's an on-screen credit for uh, Suggested By for uh, Oliver Jeffries, which is a name that David O. Selznick used for his writing projects. Despite the studio's desire to downplay the film's various sexual kinks in its edit, the marketing department, of course, played them up with advertising taglines like, She gives you that weird feeling. <laughs> and, uh, Look out! She'll get you! And save the women of London from Dracula's daughter! Upon release, the film got generally positive reviews, uh, for the most part praising Gloria Holden's performance. Reviewers at the time were split over the lesbian content, some warned about it, and others didn't notice it at all. <laughs> However, in terms of box office, the film was not received nearly as well as the original, with audiences largely staying away. In the years since its release, critics have remained divided over this movie, um, with its influence on future films acknowledged, but its own merits questioned. Um, significantly, Anne Rice cites this film as the specific inspiration for her own brand of homoerotic vampire fiction. Sure. However, um, Dracula's Daughter's biggest impact uh, was not so much on the lesbian vampire genre, so much as it was on the imminent cessation of production of horror films worldwide. Without the Lemleys to champion the genre, it largely died off, particularly uh, when the British Board of Film Censors would outright ban it from UK theaters later in the year. Jeez. Making its production no longer profitable for mainstream Hollywood or anyone else. A few stragglers in the genre will limp to theaters before 1936 is out, but Dracula's Daughter was in many ways the nail in the coffin of the first golden age of Hollywood horror. The nail in the coffin? Yeah. I think you mean the stake in the heart. Oh, sure. That would have been better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a side note, without the Lemleys, James Whale's career also suffered. Uh, his next film, The Road Back, in 1937, was a sequel to his first hit, Journey's End, but its depiction of post-World War I Germany was protested by the Nazi government. Uh, Charles Rogers capitulated to the Nazis and took the film away from Whale for reshoots and re-editing. He then assigned Whale to cheap B-movies to run out the rest of his contract, after which Whale retired from filmmaking in 1941. After various ups and downs and further hardships, Whale drowned himself in his swimming pool in 1957 at the age of 67. Wow. So we've seen this movie before. Yes. Um, 
And from what I recall, it's not super great. Mm-hmm. Flawed. It's very flawed. But a lot happens around this movie. Yeah. As, as clearly seen with your research. So I think this is going to be an interesting episode, even just with that. For sure, for sure. And I think it's going to be interesting seeing this movie again and kind of knowing the broader context around it. And how the genre has developed up to, up to this point. Yeah, of course. Developed and then stagnated. Yes. Yeah. How are we watching it? Well, Dracula's Daughter is currently available to rent from iTunes, YouTube, and Google Play on its own. And then you can find it with all the rest of the Dracula movies in the Dracula Legacy Collection on DVD and Blu-ray. Mm. So it's through the collection. Yeah, if you want it on DVD or Blu-ray, that's how you're watching it, which is how we're watching it. Um, but if you just want to watch it on its own, it, you can find it easily to, to stream through those services. Cool. Well, folks, if you'd like to watch along, now you know how. Uh, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching Dracula's Daughter from 1936. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Ben, what did you think? You know, I'm not sure. Okay. Like, it was very interesting, Mm -hmm. and I think I got into it more than the last time we watched it. I agree. But I don't know if it was good, and I don't know why. It wasn't bad. But it wasn't good. Yeah, the like last third is like a whole mess. True. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's kind of a mess. But it's more of a mess. Yeah. Do you want me to tell people what it's about? Yeah, for sure. So Van, Hel- excuse me. So Von Helsing mm-hmm. has just finished up staking Dracula, and two cops show up to Carfax Abbey, and are like, what the fuck? There's a dead guy at the bottom of these stairs, a live guy who said he has nothing to do with it, but says he did stab a body in the back. Um, so Helsing's taken into custody, and to help prove that he is not insane, he asks for an old student of his, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, a psychiatrist. Um, rather than asking for a lawyer. Meanwhile, Dracula's body is stolen by a mysterious woman who hypnotizes and also kills off-screen one of the bumbling police officers. The most bumbling. The most bumbling. We see this mysterious woman destroying Dracula's body in, like, this bonfire, throwing, like, salt and, like, saying, like, Christian things and has, like, a makeshift crucifix that she's not looking at. You know what's really funny? The prayer she's saying sounds more Jewish than Christian. Oh, I, I just assumed because she was holding up a crucifix. No, she is holding up a crucifix, which is a Christian thing, but, like, she consigns Dracula's soul to Adonne and Azrael. Yeah. And Adonne is, like, a Hebrew word for God, and Azrael is, 
I think in Kabbalah, the Angel of Death. Huh. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, that's interesting. The verdict probably didn't mean anything by it. Just thought he was being clever with the references. Yeah. But anyways, um, she's cleansing his body of evil spirits. Mm-hmm. This is Countess Maria Zaleska, Dracula's daughter. Or is she? Or is she? Yeah, I'll talk about that later. And now that Dracula is dead, she hopes that she is free from the curse of vampirism. Hence why she's cleansing his body. But nope. Uh, <laughs> she finds that she must reluctantly feed on an upper-class gentleman she picks up one night. Meanwhile, Dr. Garth and Assistant Janet have a bringing-up-baby type of relationship. And it's the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets tiring about halfway into their first scene. Anyways, Dr. Garth resolves to help Van Helsing. Excuse me, Von Helsing. They... Go to a fancy party, um, where the hostess is displaying some new art she got that has this very dark, gothic look, and she bought it from a new countess in town, Zaleska. And here, Zaleska meets Dr. Garth, and after learning that he's a psychiatrist, hopes to get him to help her beat this curse, because it's all in her head, you see. He doesn't know what's going on with her. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that... If she puts the temptation right there in front of her and she wills it, she will resist. She'll beat it. Yeah, the the example he uses is alcoholism. Yeah, put um, an alcoholic in a room next to a bottle of alcohol, and through will, they will overcome their addiction. That's what he says. By not taking the bottle. Also not how things work. Anyways, that's... Oof. I really don't like Garth. Yeah, well... Yeah, I have, I have a lot to say about that, too. Even his name. <laughs> what the fuck? Stupid name. Just call, like, just go by Gareth. I guess it's his last name. It is his last name. But He's I one don't... of those dudes with two first names. Ugh. It doesn't work for her. Yeah, this plan doesn't work. Later that night, she goes to her painting studio, and Zaleska gets her servant, Sandor, who looks exactly like Benicio del Toro. <laughs> Benicio del Toro as Dracula. Yeah. It's great. Um, He goes out with her orders to bring up a young girl to pose for a painting, um, specifically to pose with bare shoulders. Scandalous. And this is, obviously, this girl is attacked by Zaleska, and it's the most explicit vampire attack in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Even then, it, it like, fades out before anything really happens. Yeah, but you hear her going, like, no, ah." So from this... Failure of this test. Zaleska knows that she can no longer resist these vampiric urges. So she goes to Garth to ask him to go back to Transylvania with her. I don't know why. Anyway, he's been investigating um, this the young girl who had been asked to pose. She showed up dazed and confused and obviously, like, just had a vampire attack. He's been looking after her um, at the hospital um, to investigate this hypnosis and also the, her later death. Because he's busy with that, Zaleska's like, uh, I know what will get his attention and make him come with me to Transylvania. Zaleska kidnaps Janet and just takes her back to Transylvania. Garth tracks them down there, and Helsing and Scotland Yard are coming up as well, just, just a little behind. 
basically Zaleska wants Garth to trade his life for Janet, so Garth will be a vampire for eternity too. This, all of this is coming out of nowhere, but that's cool. That's what the movie's doing. Sandor is angry that Garth is basically skipping the line ahead of him. Yeah. Sandor's only serving Zaleska to be a vampire. Yeah, he's the Renfield of this movie. Yeah. So he decides to try to shoot Garth with a bow and arrow. And he has terrible aim because he, A, he keeps missing. And B, misses so much that he hits Zaleska into the heart and she dies. Um, Sender gets shot and killed by Scotland Yard, and Janet awakes from her hypnosis and is safe with Garth. The end. That's more or less it. So I you can kind of see where in the plot things just devolve into whatever. Well, I mean, I think she does say at one point, like, once she's realized she can't overcome these urges, she's just going to lean into it, but she still wants Garth to be, like, her eternal vampire companion and that's why she's bringing him back or whatever but why him because there's only five people in london sarah (laughs) what do you want to talk about first here i have a lot of things to say about this movie but i don't really have like a good way of organizing any of my thoughts about them so i just kind of have a lot all everywhere so so what do you want to hit first my notes are kind of the same way. Just I have arrows going across oh, my no. pages, just being like, this point relates to this point, and that to that. Ultimately, I feel like this movie could have been good. Yes. But it gets so muddled by the end, um, both in terms of plot and people's motivation, that it's a mess. Yeah. Part of this is the fact that the film seems like it can't be too explicit about mm-hmm. vampirism, whether because of the code... Or because it's a lady. I don't... So that's still just the code, but, like... And then, by the end, it also falls back onto this tired old love triangle angle. Only this time, I guess, between, like, Janet, Zaleska, and Garth. Um, And it doesn't work here at all. And also, rather than being its own thing, a lot of dialogue and a lot Mm -hmm. of the late plot meandering are all due to this, like need to rehash or play the classics, play the hits from the first Dracula. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, self-referential stuff going on here where bits of dialogue or certain gags or whole scenes even are lifted from Dracula in that kind of like, oh, remember this from the first movie kind of um, atmosphere, I guess. I I will agree with you. I think this movie's central problem is ambiguity. Mm. That it's not willing or able to be explicit about the things it needs to be explicit about. Namely, vampirism and who, what, and where did Countess Maria Zaleska come from? Like, anything about her it refuses to talk about or answer... And that creates this domino effect where I think the rest of the movie ends up not working. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of interesting parallels between Dracula's Daughter and Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. Um, in the most obvious sense of, like, they're both sequels to, like, the horror films that kind of kicked off Universal's horror spree. That makes it sound like it was, like, a killing spree. Um, <laughs> but also how, like, Bride, the opening, like... 10 minutes, maybe less than that, being like, here's what happened in the first movie, now let's carry on with the story. 
and then it just tells its own story. Mm-hmm. Whereas Dracula's daughter does the like. Here's what happened in the first one. Van Helsing has to. Von Helsing <laughs> has to tell the police officer, like, no, really, there was a vampire. He was terrorizing this group of people. He used Carfax Abbey as his blah 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 to rehash that old plot. And then they keep doing what you said, like self referentiating? Self referencing. Self referencing. And sometimes it's like a, huh, I never drink wine. Yeah. But then it's also like, why are we going back to Transylvania? Oh, they still had the sets, I see. Yeah. Like, there's no reason for us to be back here. I see Transylvania still set in, like, the 1800s with dancing peasants. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a lot to talk about that, too. Yeah. it's So that's one interesting, I guess, contrast between the two. Sure. I was also thinking, our Bride of Frankenstein episode's really good. Yes. And you brought up a really interesting fear that I'd never considered before for the film, which was the fear of heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. That people have to be, like, it's mandatory to be heterosexual. Yeah. Forcing that on people is bad. Yeah. What's interesting here is it's almost like heteronormativity ruins this movie because of the forced love triangle bullshit at the end. Like, it starts to, like, do something kind of really interesting where, like, Zaleska doesn't seem very upset about having to go kill a gentleman. Hmm. You know, she goes and does it. She needs to eat. She's like, yeah, there's blood on the coat. Yeah, I really wish I didn't have to do this. I thought I was free. And then when she does her test, Mm -hmm. it's with this young girl. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's very as explicit as it could be at for the time, I guess, that, like, there's a, I guess, homoerotic nature to it. Yeah, the scene between her and the girl who poses for her is the big lesbian scene in the movie. It's the one that set Joseph Breen off the most, because, like, I guess in earlier drafts of the screenplay, like, the girl was going to pose nude because it's art. Not that you were ever going to see anything, but, like, Breen was like, yeah, I won't even let you go that far. She's just going to have... Her tank top or whatever, they don't have tank tops in the 30s, but, you know, whatever she's wearing under her shirt, her little underwear there, she's just going to, like, put the straps down so her shoulders are bare, but everything else is totally covered. Like, he was super on top of, like, regulating that scene. And the way that Zaleska's, like, mesmerized, Mm -hmm. to the point where Lily, the girl who poses, she comments on, like, why are you staring at me like that? Yeah. And, like, I don't recall... Any other case in Dracula, something like that being brought up, except when Mina is, like, going after... John. John. He's like, why are you looking at me like that? Because she's looking predatory. So, like, obviously you see, like, the predatory aspect to it. But, like, there's a sexual thing going on there, too. Um, And it's bad. And it's bad? Yeah. Like... What do you mean? Like, the queerness in... Dracula's Daughter, if we accept queerness as a subtext, which is a whole other thing, is presented as bad. Yes. You know. Yeah, like, she's trying to escape from it. She's drawn back into it. Which is also another thing that, like, this is why I'm like, this is rambling. Mm -hmm. But whatever. Part of the reason why this movie can't really work is 
Zaleska, in the beginning, is kind of most comparable to Henry Frankenstein in that they're wanting to break free of being weirdos, of being queer. Sure. She should be sympathetic. Um, And Henry Frankenstein is kind of sympathetic and is drawn back into the game by Dr. Pretorius. But there's no Dr. Pretorius character in here. So Zaleska has to play that role as well to basically be like, yeah, it's too hard. I'm just going to lean into it. Yeah, I mean, Sander is kind of the Pretorius here because he's in no way at any point wanting to help her with not being a vampire. You know, they, they burn Dracula's corpse and she's like, there, I'm free. And Sander's like... Yeah, I mean, we'll see about that. And like, you know, and then she's like, oh, I think I have to go out again tonight. And Sanders like, yeah, I saw that coming. And like, it's clear that he wants her to stay vampire because, you know, she hasn't turned him into a vampire yet. Yeah, but it's not in the same way. Yeah. Maybe because he's a servant, whereas Dr. Pretorius was a previous mentor mm-hmm. of Frankenstein. The other reason why I was like, heteronormativity kind of ruins this movie is because... They're just shoving Garth and Janet down our eyeballs like it's cute, but it's the worst. Yeah. I have a lot to say about kind of all of these things. And it's it's weird the way they're, they're they all are kind of interrelated without being interrelated in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's why I said it was hard for me to nail down, like, what is the thing that's wrong with this movie? Because I think this movie has a lot of interesting ideas and characters, and themes, and yet it doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. I think that the big problem here, like I was saying, is the vagueness with which the Countess is treated. Mm -hmm. Um, Both textually and subtextually. On a textual level, this movie creates, either on purpose or on accident, doubt over whether she even is a real vampire, Mm-hmm. Or if it's just all in her head, doubt about who she is, where she came from. She she outright says that she's Dracula's daughter, but there's no like explanation of her origin. There's no explanation of what she means. Yeah, does she mean biological? Does she mean vampirological? Exactly. Like, does she mean she's Dracula's daughter because like Vlad the Impaler had sex with some woman who gave birth to her? Or does she mean she's Dracula's daughter and she's like Dracula's vampire spawn? And if that's the case, what makes like a daughter of Dracula different from a bride of Dracula? And where are those brides anyways? Like where did she... Lost to the mists of time. Right, like where did she come from? When she dies at the end, Van Helsing makes this remark that she's been dead a hundred years. How does he know that? What does that mean? Um, There's a lot of vagueness going on here. And then because of, like, the code-ness of, like, we can't actually show her do anything, you wonder if she's even a real vampire. Because, you know, we never really see her attack anyone. You know, it's clear that she is attacking people because they find the bodies and they're like, oh, drained of blood, pinpricks at the neck, blah, blah, blah. But, like, she hypnotizes people and... This movie treats hypnosis, in terms of its psychiatric use, as a real thing. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that she has magic telepathy if she's doing it too. And then we never see her, like, transform into anything. We barely ever see her even get in and out of a coffin. And there's a lot of weirdness to, like, her whole character arc. Because if you were really a vampire couldn't go out in the sun and had to suck blood to live and shit, 
what would make you think a psychiatrist could help you? Yeah. Your soul is doomed by Satan or whatever, right? Like, that's a little bit more than a psychiatrist can help with. But when Garth is talking about, like, oh, yeah, in psychiatry we help people get rid of their obsessions all the time, she's like, oh, maybe this is how I get free of vampirism. And it's like, no one can therapy you into being alive again. That's <laughs> not, like, so why would you believe that if you were actually a vampire? And, you know, she doesn't realize that she's a vampire again until, like, the night after she kills Dracula. Well, a pretty easy test would have been to just go outside in the daytime. So it's it's really weird. And the movie doesn't tell you one way or another, other than the fact that it's a sequel to Dracula, a movie where vampires are definitely real. Mm -hmm. But, like, who is this vampire? You know? And, and, yeah, and what does being Dracula's daughter even mean? So that's a textual vagueness that hurts the movie because it's hard just on a surface level to be able to tell what the fuck the movie is about. And then on a subtextual level, this movie's vague about what it's using vampirism as a metaphor for, because it's definitely using it as a metaphor for something. Yeah. So, like, my question, like, the three, there's, like, four things it could be. So, at some points in this movie, vampirism feels like a metaphor for drug addiction. Mm-hmm. At others, um, and even textually, it's called out as being a metaphor for alcoholism. Subtextually, we've also identified it as being potentially a metaphor for homosexuality. And by bringing Dr. Garth and psychiatry into the story, it's also a metaphor for mental illness. I think maybe the key to understanding some of this is that in the 1930s, all of those things were filed under mental illness. Isn't addiction still? Yeah, addiction is still a mental health problem. Yeah. Um, but, like, I think homosexuality being a mental health problem in the 1930s is a key way to view how this movie views homosexuality. Mm -hmm. From our modern perspective, you know, people either are homosexual or aren't, or they are bisexual, or they're wherever on the Kinsey scale they go, but it's an almost inherent thing about them. Uh, and in the 30s, it was a mental disorder that you could treat and give therapy to and cure. And, you know, yeah, I get that, you know, uh, psychiatrists, the most understanding psychiatrists might be like, yeah, I get it. You're attracted to other women, but you just need to resist that and not mm -hmm. and go be in relationships with men and that'll and it'll be fine. You'll get cured by heterosexual sex. And I think it weirdly informs how this movie treats vampirism. Because, like, in my head, it's like, yeah, how can psychiatry cure vampirism? But then again, how can psychiatry cure homosexuality? It can't do either. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this vagueness means there's a lot that we can project onto Countess Maria Zaleska. We, we kind of have to project all of these things onto her. Like, so with the drug addiction thing, when Dracula dies, she expects she's going to be free. And it reminds me of, like, an addict who thinks that because her dealer's been arrested, that's the end of her habit, you know? And, of course, it isn't. The way she attacks women, whether that's Lily or even Janet, later in the movie, um, creates this lesbian subtext largely just through the sexualized way we view vampires and culture to begin with. Garth compares it to alcoholism. Regardless of whatever the allegory is for, she's trying to escape it. And Sandor is sort of there 
like the devil on her shoulder urging her to stay on the wrong path. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the negative influence, whatever that is in the metaphor you've constructed in your mind to make sense of this movie. Now, if we engage critically with the subtext of homosexuality as a mental disorder and therefore as vampirism in this movie, yeah, you come away with the idea that this film has the opposite message of Bride of Frankenstein. Because in Dracula's Daughter, non-mainstream sexuality, because it's a mental disorder, is unnatural. Uh, It's a disorder to be overcome with will, just as vampirism is in this movie. And that's why the Countess, you know, is doomed to die at the end of the film, instead of being cured, because that was just sort of the fate you had to get if you were gay in a movie in the Code era. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because she can't suppress her dark urges. She can't change who she is. Meanwhile, the heterosexual couple of Garth and Janet is just destined to be together even though they they really don't want to be hate each other they clearly hate each other which is this common trope in toxic heterosexual media that i want to talk about sure like i mentioned bringing up baby which i remember we tried to watch it one year and i i was like i can't yeah i had to watch it in film school and it's i know people love it if you love bringing up baby that's totally cool yeah I can't stand it. The thing about it is their relationship is supposed to be that screwball comedy type where they bicker and they hate each other, but they really love each other, you know, secretly inside, right? He teases you because he likes you. Right. Now, that's sort of a very toxic trope, but I will say the reason it became a popular trope is because there are definitely instances you can point to where it works and... You know, and it is somehow charming. Um, A lot of movies from the 30s and 40s did this trope. It was very common at this time in Hollywood. A lot of movies that reference that time in Hollywood do it. Like, it's it's Han Solo and Leia's whole thing. It's Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood's whole thing. It's Harrison Ford and someone else. And anyone's whole whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's totally true. So sometimes it does work, and I want to acknowledge that before I keep talking about Garth and Janet. Because the thing about Garth and Janet is it doesn't fucking work here. And I'm not quite sure if it's because the writing here makes them a little bit too vicious to each other. They're just a little too mean to each other. Or the other problem might be that the performers don't have the chemistry to pull it off. A lot of times the thing that makes this trope work is the actor and the actress having actual real chemistry with each other. Because what you need as an audience is when they're bickering, you need to be able to see their desire to fuck each other behind the eyes. Yeah. You know? And, and that's that's not here. No. You get no sense of that they really love each other part. It's They just seem to hate each other. But, you know, when she gets kidnapped, he goes after her because heteronormativity. Yeah. Kind of speaking to that um, chemistry... There's no chemistry between Zaleska and Garth either. No. No. The, the, this, this cast doesn't work well with each other. I feel like everyone in this cast is in like a different movie. Mm-hmm. And part of it is, is the script itself is a little schizophrenic. You know, it bounces from, I would say, four, between four different modes. The script is sometimes in comic relief mode. And this script's idea of comic relief is... Bumbling Brit- British policemen. Yeah, British stereotypes. 
um, of all kinds. Uh, its second mode is screwball comedy, which we've already identified as not working. Its third mode is referencing the original Dracula, which also doesn't work. And its fourth mode is the mode that does work, which is the stuff that's directly about Zaleska trying to escape her curse. Mm-hmm. So everyone's kind of in this weird different movie uh, when you look at the cast. Like, Ever Van Sloan, he's just the same as he ever was. And hardly in this. Right. Um, and most of his lines are just repeats of his lines from Dracula. Yeah. Margaret Churchill is good as Janet. It's just that Janet sucks. <laughs> Irving Pitchell is a lot of fun as the super weird Sander whose appearance feels kind of queer goth to me for some reason that I can't put my finger on. <laughs> it's the eyeliner. Right. Um, they're also really going for him to look ethnic. Yeah, they're trying. They're trying real hard. Both with, like, the makeup choices. Like, he's not in blackface or anything. Um, but also people's reaction. Yeah, well, he's it. got, like, the eyebrows and a weird hairstyle and the eyeliner and kind of, like, his lips are, have some red on them, I think. Um, but I think a big problem here is Otto Kruger, who plays Garth. What is he doing? Is this acting? <laughs> the thing is, is, like, Garth, as written, is a little bit prickly, right? He kind of thinks he's right all the time. He doesn't like taking sass from people. He's very demanding. And to make that likable as a protagonist, you kind of need to play that a certain way. And he doesn't. He plays it... Straight. Straight. Exactly. Which means that he comes off as not likable. He's too stern. He's self-righteous. He's kind of an ass to everybody in this movie. So it makes... His connection with Janet not work. It makes his tension between him and the Countess not work. You know, like, he's just not likable as a protagonist, so the whole movie falls apart. Mm -hmm. I can see why he ended up playing villains later in his life, because that's clearly more in his wheelhouse. Yeah, I think the fact that he doesn't have chemistry with anyone is why it seems to come out of nowhere when Zaleska's like, yeah, I want you to be my eternal vampire brethren. Yeah. Like, why? Yeah. I don't see what's so appealing about this guy. You went to him for help, and he didn't help you. Why Why is his reward for that eternal life? Yeah, the only reason to keep him around, in my opinion, would be, like, to continue the therapy or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the therapy isn't working. It's not going to work. Yeah. That being said... The standout in this cast is Gloria Holden. Definitely. She's actually really good. Maybe it was her disdain for the part that ended up actually helping, because it feels like it informs Zaleska's own self-hatred for her condition. Mm. Um, But she, you know, she goes for it, and she treats it like a serious part, and she gives it kind of what it needs to work. She's the thing that works in this movie. So anything that does work in this movie is a result of the fact that her performance works. I would agree with that. One thing, I was really worried when, in the context setting, you brought up that this is the same director as The Invisible Ray. Mm -hmm. And I got real nervous, even though I I had seen it before, but it it had been a while. Because um, The Invisible Ray just looks like a movie. Yeah, there's nothing there. This looks like a horror movie. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah, this, the, 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 the direction here is much better than the Invisible Ray. Uh, Lambert Hillier seems to be really trying to go above and beyond, even if he doesn't really have the talent to do that. Yeah, he, but he's trying. He's trying. Unfortunately, he won't get to evolve any further in this genre. Yeah. This is the last time we're ever going to see him. And the next thing that he does that I know about is that Batman serial in 1943. Uh, the first live-action Batman. Yeah. Lambert Hillier. This film has a really hard time with being a sequel to Dracula. Well, because it's like it wants to be Dracula. And it also has no idea... It struggles with how to continue the story. Mostly because the story of Dracula is over. Yeah. And that's what's so strange. Like, it... I guess Frankenstein had the luxury of, like, yeah, we only adapted half the book. Yeah. Cool. Um, so they had something to kind of build off of, but then it still tells its own story. Like, yes, it's a sequel, and you can tell it's a sequel, but it's able to move beyond whatever happened in the first one, right? This one, it 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 feels like it's shackled. Ironically, given that, like... Zaleska's like, I'm still manipulated or held <laughs> by the man beyond the grave. And yeah. It's like, yeah, we know that feeling with this movie. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting because you can see Garrett Fort trying, and I, I, have, I have a theory about what holds him back, other than just the code stuff that we've kind of hammered on. So when the movie starts, it starts with the, this idea that Van Helsing's been arrested, and when he gives his defense, they go, okay, so either you admit that you killed someone... Or you're insane. Either outcome is not great for Van Helsing. He's either going to go to the gallows or go to an asylum. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's sort of an interesting idea. Like if you were to sit a writer down and say like, okay, what happens immediately after Dracula? Like that's kind of an interesting thing to think about is like, okay, what are the real world consequences of that story? Now in order to do that, the whole rest of the cast of Dracula has to vanish into thin air. But it is interesting. The problem is the movie stops being about that the second Garth shows up, right? And then it's just like, okay, whatever. And then Zaleska being around proves that vampires are real enough for Scotland Yard, I guess. And then we get into the Zaleska stuff. And what you can kind of see watching the movie is that, you know, Garrett Ford had this one idea of, hey, what if Van Helsing got arrested? And then he kind of abandons it because he's definitely been given the marching orders like there's going to be a female vampire who's Dracula's daughter. Because that was the one constant through all the script versions up to when he was given it. So he introduces that character. And you can tell that he's, I think, really interested in her and her dilemma. Because that's the stuff that works. But when it comes to all the vampire stuff about her, he's got nothing. And I think that's why the movie copies the original Dracula so much. It's... It's as if Garrett Fort seems unsure how to tell a vampire story without the source material to guide him. Mm. Like, what else do you do with vampires than what happened in Dracula? Um, so that's why so much is copied from Dracula. He, he can't seem to come up with new vampire stuff. Yeah, I guess um, that's kind of a luxury of us sitting in 2018 with the wealth of vampire everything yeah. that exists. He has kind of made a breakthrough here, though, yes. given, like like you said, Anne Rice. Like, Anne Rice would not be anything without this evolution of cursed vampire. Yeah, so that's the one thing, right? 
he he can't figure out a new spin on almost any part of the vampire lore except with the actual character of Zaleska because she's shown as a desperate, sympathetic character. And that's the big ad here is the idea of the vampire who doesn't want to be a vampire anymore. That's the big thing here. That's the takeaway. That's the idea that fuels the whole tragic vampire archetype from this to Anne Rice to Joss Whedon to Stephanie Meyer, right? I mean, heck, it, that's even the idea behind Larry Talbot in The Wolfman, and then that informs all werewolf stories after that, right? Like, this is, you know, there were sort of traces of that idea in the original Dracula script. You could kind of, but you had to really, like, pull at it to get them. Yeah, it was kind of like some, like, seasoning on top of the meal of Dracula. Yeah, it was... And this is like, here's a table full of salt. <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure. It's, 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 um... That makes it sound bad. <laughs> you don't I want mean, a table full of salt. The movie's kind of bad. But yeah, you're, you're totally right. Like, in the original Dracula, he had some hints of that because it was something that gave his character a bit more flavor. But yeah, we're really going into it here, and that's... In terms of the horror genre, I think a new idea. Like, I can't recall really a movie before this that was about the monster not wanting to be a monster anymore. I mean, we've had, like, Werewolf of London, but that wasn't... I wouldn't, It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same because he's not really the monster so much as he's the victim of the monster, right? And this is just an effect of that. Yeah. Yeah, for me, with the way that the plot just kind of devolves and crumbles by the end, um, whether that's from the code or the demise of the Lemley family or whatever, this movie ends up coming out sloppy. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of hammered that home. Um, I still think this is worth seeing, mm-hmm. and I still think it's enjoyable despite, you know, the times that you're grimacing with the British stereotypes and Garth and Janet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a movie with interesting ideas and characters uh, that ultimately just isn't very good. I think it's because it doesn't have conviction. It has it doesn't have the conviction to really go for it. It never quite goes as far as you want it to, or shows what you want it to, or explains what you want it to, which is all stuff that it can't do because the codes here and no one cares enough about this movie to fight for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you're left with is this plot that's very paint-by-numbers. You know, the bad guy takes the girl back to their hideout, and then we have to go fight the bad guy there, like Saturday morning cartoons. So despite the interesting themes, the actual happenings on screen are not very interesting. Yeah. So where would you like to rank this? So I have a very narrow range this time. Okay. I've kind of zeroed in on a little tiny spot. Um, my ceiling is number 30, above Murders in the Room Morgue, below Dr. X. And my floor is number 34, below Mystery of the Wax Museum, above The Mummy. That's pretty much where I was thinking, too. Yeah? Um, my ceiling... When I first started thinking about ranking, my ceiling started at 26 with The Raven mm-hmm. and went down to 33, Mystery of the Wax Museum. But as I started writing out what films were there, I really felt this film deserved to be 
probably below Murders in the Rue Morgue, 30, and above Mark of the Vampire at 32. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sort of started at the bottom and worked my way up. I knew that despite this movie's problems, it was at the very least more interesting to me than The Mummy, which is just, The Mummy <laughs> is like one standard length of horror film. Maybe with Mystery of the Wax Museum is actually more enjoyable to watch than this, because this movie is kind of like sometimes a bit of a chore. But then I looked at Mark the Vampire right above that, and I went, well, at least this movie has real vampires in it. Yeah. Maybe. That's, that's what I was thinking. For me, um, while both Murders in the Rue Morgue and Dracula's Daughter both had their own issues behind the scenes, which yeah. led to a disjointed film, mm -hmm. Murders in the Rue Morgue is more of a horror film. This, because of its vague vagueness has a level of blandness yeah. as well. So that's why I was feeling below that. It's I, it, For me, basically, it's either above or below the 1935 Student of Prague. Well, as I was working my way up from Mark of the Vampire, I saw the 1935 Student of Prague, and my only thought was, fuck Nazis. And then I kept going up. <laughs> and um, looking at this versus Murders in the Room Morgue, I think you hit on an interesting comparison in that both of these movies are a little bit broken because of their troubled behind-the-scenes history. And both of them are oddly weird linchpins in the history of horror, despite not being classics, so not being very well-known. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm inclined to agree with you that Murders in the Room Morgue is more of a horror movie, because even when this film engages with vampirism and Transylvania and all kinds of horror tropes it almost edges more into just kind of being an action-adventure movie. You it know? feels... Something about this film, it, when it's in Transylvania, mm -hmm. oddly enough, it feels safe. Yeah. We've been here before. Yeah. Murders in the Remorque, you're like, what the fuck is going to happen next? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Dracula's Daughter is rarely scary. Um, it does make a few attempts to be exciting at times. You know, but like I said, its its climax is very Saturday morning cartoon in a way. The fears of Dracula's daughter, you know, ultimately the central fear of Dracula's daughter is Zaleska's fear. And if you want to express that fear in a universal way that doesn't depend on how you've interpreted the allegory, because as we said, it's vague, that universal fear is, I'm not normal, and I want to be normal. Mm -hmm. that's what the movie's about. And the movie is in favor of normalcy and being normal. And when she finds that she can't be normal because she's not good enough to be normal or whatever, then it becomes, well, I'm going to lash out at normal people then, right? Which is, like, not great. Like, there's no ultimate celebration of not being normal the way that you might have in, like, an Edward Scissorhands or whatever. It's just... Well, this woman wanted to be normal, but we couldn't help her, so she turned evil, so we had to destroy her. Mm -hmm. That's what the movie's about, which kind of sucks, right? I think the fears in Immers the Remorgue are a little more potent. And then, and then I got to Dr. X, which was like, no, this is just a solid movie and doesn't have a bunch of bullshit problems, like yeah. Murders in the Remorgue and Dracula's Daughter do. I'm kind of inclined to put this below Murders in the Remorgue, above Student of Prague. I am happy with that. Cool. So then, uh, we've got 68 films on the list, uh, just to 
update our listeners, if you haven't been over to the website in a while, with number one as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, and number 68 as Condemned to Live from 1935. And it's on that list that Dracula's Daughter enters at number 31 from 1936, (laughs) directed by Lambert Hillier. If you would like to see this list, you can head on over to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to the various episodes that uh, I've referenced in the opening, as well as an appeals box if you would like to make a case for Dracula's Daughter or any other film being higher or lower or some other place on the list. Let us know there. You can also contact us over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or review on any of those services or wherever you happen to listen to the podcast through our RSS feed. Uh, Another way you can help us out is just by telling a friend about us. If you know anyone who might be interested in classic horror movies, classic Hollywood, cultural history, that kind of stuff. Uh, let them know about the show. Finally, you can help us out financially uh, by going to patreon.com slash podcast. You too can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month, and that helps us with hosting fees. It helps us with having the, the time and the resources to make the show better and uh, do more of it in the future. Uh, at the $5 level, Patrons get access to bonus audio cut from previous episodes. And at the $10 level, patrons get access to monthly horror short stories written by me. Our first Patreon goal is to reach a point where we feel we can release bonus episodes, one a month, covering horror-adjacent movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or... I think Edward Scissorhands would kind of fit there. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, we're staying... In Sequel Town, because... Sequel Town! (laughs) Because next week, we are watching Revolt of the Zombies, Edward and Victor Halperin's sequel to their indie hit, White Zombie. Is Bella Lugosi in it again? Heck no. Oh, just checking, because, like, that would be an obvious person to include, Mm -hmm. but he died at the last one. Yeah, I feel like that was Dracula's daughter's problem, too. Yeah. Yeah, so another Bella Lugosi sequel with no Bella Lugosi. Bella (laughs) Nogosi. Yeah, exactly. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.